Hello. Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a place where Brookings scholars discuss ideas about and solutions for the most pressing public policy challenges. I'm Fred Dews. In 1964, President Johnson declared an unconditional war on poverty. Then, poverty was concentrated in America's cities and rural areas, and so programs were designed to eradicate poverty in those places. Today, however, the geography of poverty has shifted to America's suburbs. In the book, Confronting Suburban Poverty in America, Elizabeth Kneebone and co-author Alan Baruby offer a roadmap to changing how we can address the new challenges of suburban poverty. In this podcast, I spoke with Elizabeth about the findings in her book and ways to increase access to opportunity for poor Americans. Elizabeth, thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Oh, thank you for having me. We're here to talk about your book that you co-authored with Alan Baruby called Confronting Suburban Poverty in America. Before we get to the substance, I have to share a funny anecdote that happened to me this morning. On the commute, I put my iPod on shuffle, and the second song that came up was The Suburbs by Arcade Fire. So I listened to the whole song. It's like they knew you were going to have this conversation. I know. Today. So I feel inspired <laughs> by, by, their, by their music. But actually, I'm more inspired by your, by your book and, your, and the way you and Alan think about suburban poverty in America. And we're at a time when everyone's talking about it, where we just noted the 50th anniversary of Lyndon Johnson's uh, unconditional war on poverty. A lot of members of Congress are talking about it. Um, going back to that time 50 years ago, what did Johnson mean then? What happened? And kind of where are we a half century later? So in President Johnson's first State of the Union in 1964, he, he took the opportunity to really declare this unconditional war on poverty. What that ushered in was really a broad set of programs with the goal of alleviating poverty in the country. And many of those programs that, that came into play following the war on poverty are still with us today. They're key pieces of our safety net from Medicare and Medicaid, food stamps, Head Start. So really, there is this lasting legacy uh, of that of that very ambitious agenda he set out. Uh, it's been 50 years. The poverty rate is something like 15%. So a lot of people in Congress, especially Republicans, are saying that it failed. We, we need a new approach. Uh, but I'm wondering, in, in the context of your book, um, is even asking who won a worthwhile question? Because I don't think that's where you're going in, in your book. Well, I think – I mean I think that kind of comes from calling it a war, it, that, is that it begs that question. So who won? But I, that question really also kind of assumes that it's over. You know, And like you said, today we still have 15 percent of the country living in poverty. It's 46 million people. Uh, and so there's clearly still still a lot of work to be done. Though we know a lot of the programs that I just mentioned, like – like Medicare, Medicaid, food stamps, are really effective at keeping millions of people out of poverty. But we're facing a lot of these other downward pressures. I mean, it's kind of a shifting battleground here. I mean, we've had economic and structural change that means more low-wage jobs and an economy with growing inequality. And and really, we're we're in an age and time where even working full-time doesn't necessarily guarantee that you're going to be above the poverty line. And I think what we've also seen shifting over time is is the geography of okay. poverty, which is really what comes back to you know the book that that Alan and I wrote is you know when when Johnson declared this war on poverty, a lot of the images he used in the speech evoked the sense of poverty and place, like inner cities, uh, you know Appalachia, rural communities, and and really that was the geography of poverty at the time. You know, more most poor people lived in in inner cities or in rural right. communities, but since there we've since that time we've seen a real shift, and particularly since the two thousands. 
during the 2000s, the poor population in suburbs grew by 65 percent. Uh, that makes it the largest and fastest growing poor population in the country today. So, so it's, it's faster than the growth rate in cities. That's right. That was about 30%. So poverty has grown in the 2000s across the country. Right. But we are seeing increasingly that poverty is in the suburbs. It's home to about a, a third of our poor population now live in the suburbs. About 3 million more people uh, living in poverty live in suburbs than in cities. So that's a really drastically different geography of poverty than what we were facing 50 years ago. Uh, and I think that does have a lot of implications for how we think about poverty in place uh, and, and a lot of the programs that came in during the war on poverty were built with that idea that poverty was a very urban or a very rural phenomenon. And now we're in a time where we need to really reevaluate, reassess, figure out what's working, and how do we better adapt our policies to address uh, a new reality where poverty is increasingly suburban. So can you pick an example from the book that demonstrates how the existing architecture of anti-poverty programs kind of doesn't work in the new geography. Sure. Well, I mean, I think part of the challenge with some of these programs that that were designed uh, with central cities or distressed inner cities in mind is is that they haven't proven very flexible to adapting to the suburban landscape of poverty. And one example that we talk about in the book is in the Chicago suburbs. So on the south side of Chicago, you have a, a group of communities that have been struggling with growing poverty for quite some time as a lot of steel mill jobs, manufacturing jobs left the area. They saw this economic restructuring. But then in recent years, they were hit really hard by the foreclosure crisis, had some of the highest foreclosure rates uh, in the region, higher than the city of Chicago even. So that could have a very destabilizing effect in these communities. And rather than competing against each other for limited resources to address these challenges, you had 19 different uh, suburban communities come together right. to plan collectively about how to address these issues that they were all facing and, and how to really work on stabilizing uh, the housing market in, in their communities. So they applied together for the neighborhood stabilization funds that were part of the um, American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. In applying for those funds as a collective, um, they did end up succeeding in, in attracting $9 million dollars. However, because the system wasn't used to dealing with this suburban collaborative kind of approach to these issues, rather than giving the collaborative the $9 million, um, the county who was administering the funds chose to give 11 communities funds separately. Okay. So really did away with a lot of the benefits, the savings, the, um, the positive efficiencies of scale that came as working as a collaborative. So it just shows how how difficult it's, it's been to sort of update these programs to deal with this new reality. I'm going to go back and again widen the lens on this um, very interesting idea that you all express, and that's the perception of the suburbs versus the cities or versus rural areas. Uh, I'm going to quote at length from the book because I think it was very interesting. Quote, suburbs have traditionally inhabited a very different popular narrative in American culture. In many ways, suburbs have been central to the particular brand of American dream that developed rapidly after World War II. Moving to the suburbs signaled a step up, a house with a yard, a car to drive to work, good schools, and safe streets. Now, I get the impression from reading the book uh, and reading some of your other work that that's not necessarily the case anymore. The suburbs aren't that precise American dream that we kind of have fixed in our minds. 
Well, and in fact, I would say I don't know that that's ever been the case, that that's all the suburbs were, because in fact, suburbs have always been more diverse than that uh, and have long had poverty in their midst. Uh, it's just I think what we've seen in recent years with this rapid increase uh, in suburban poverty uh, is that more and more places are now addressing these challenges, are facing the challenges associated with poverty. All different kinds of suburbs have been touched by these trends. So you have older uh, entering places that are more urbanized, that may have been longer dealing with these challenges, resemble central cities more than what we might typically think of as a suburb. Those places have seen poverty increase, but so have uh, affluent, sort of exurban, uh, diffuse suburbs that we don't normally typically associate with poverty. They've also experienced increases in the poor population in recent years, particularly following the recession. So I think that's really important to to keep in mind, one, this diversity in suburbs, but also the wide-ranging scope of these trends, uh, because it means more than ever that these challenges are regional in their scope. You know, because cities continue to struggle with higher poverty rates and with growing poverty. But now you have uh, these other types of communities throughout metropolitan regions also grappling with those challenges. So really, we should be looking at this as a regional challenge and thinking about solutions that work at a regional level. I'm going to kind of take a, a side question here on uh, on geography itself. I think it's very interesting that that you and, and many of your colleagues in this area can define very precisely uh, what these suburban communities are. We're not just talking. Oh, uh, I grew up in Dallas, for example. You know, Oak Cliff is a suburb of Dallas or something. Um, it was very far away from my consciousness when I was a kid. But it, it's a very specific thing, right? We're not there, there's Chicago and then there's hundreds of communities around it, and, and, and you know exactly what they are. I mean, how do you get the data on these kinds of places? How do you assemble it into kind of a working model of what's going on in suburban America? Yeah, I, that's, you know, it is actually a real challenge when we talk about suburbs, because suburbs mean so many different things to so many different people. And in fact, there's not one official definition of what the suburbs are. Uh, so when we come to this question and look across metro areas, uh, when we define suburbs, what we've chosen as our definition is starting with the official metropolitan statistical area that the Census Bureau and the Office of Management and Budget um, delineate. What are the named cities in the official metropolitan statistical area? Because these are really the core urban you know, centers that, uh, that ground and sort of anchor a metropolitan region. We choose the first name city in the official metropolitan statistical area title and any other city in the name that has a population of at least 100,000. And then from there, the remainder of the metro area we treat as suburban. Okay. So again, that gets us back to um, this question of when we say suburbs, that tends to, that's, you know, makes people think of one place. But really, this can be a very diverse mix of places within a metropolitan area, right. places that may strike some people as very rural, others very urban and urbanized because they're, they're denser and they're older and they're more established. So we're talking about a wide range of experiences within uh, the suburban context. And in the book, you have a very interesting table that explains how suburban and urban areas, suburban and urban poor are the same and are different. Can you can you talk a little bit about the similarities and the differences? Sure. Uh, you know, that is, that's a question that often comes up when we talk about urban and suburban poor is how are they different? And we do see um, some differences that emerge across these, these populations, mostly in terms of things like race and, and ethnic makeup. 
which I think really reflects larger differences in, in the populations that make up city and suburban areas. So, right. so the poor population in the suburbs is more likely to be white, for instance. The other difference that we see is in terms of home ownership, that you know, poor families in the suburbs are more likely to own their home than poor families in cities. But beyond that, I think what was more, stri- more striking in looking at these characteristics is how similar these populations okay. are. So in terms of you know, the share who are foreign-born, very similar. Work effort, uh, you know, most of these are working families, very similar across, across urban and suburban populations. And also the share living in deep poverty is very similar, which I think is surprising often to, to people looking at these numbers that what we consider deep poverty is people with incomes below half the official poverty line okay. and similar shares uh, you know, over 40 percent in both cities and suburbs of poor residents are living below half the poverty line, um, which is just very striking. The level of hardship uh, is so similar across, across cities and suburbs. So in many ways, the, the poor populations are more alike than they are different. Going the other way from those in deep poverty, what about those in near poverty? And also you could, you could address the, the issue with the definition of poverty itself, which I, I just heard something recently about. Um, it was defined, I think, also 50 years ago uh, when Johnson made his speech as, as some uh, purchasing power of somebody to, to feed their family of four. And then you multiply it by two or three, depending on how many people you have in your family. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, the same sort of parameters that they're using to, to measure poverty back when they launched the war on poverty are still used for the official measure today. They do vary by, you know, family size, um, age. But typically it's this, it's this one measure across the country um, that in 2012 was uh, roughly $23,500 for a family of four. Um, and you know that's a gross income measure. It's mm-hmm. it's before taxes. Uh, I think some of the um, challenges with this measure and some of the criticisms of this measure come from the fact that it doesn't reflect um, you know taxes or also many programs, many war on poverty programs that have proven really successful in helping alleviate poverty. So that's missed in this measure as well. Um, but it does give us this sort of standard benchmark over the years to measure these trends and right. and down to a local level to look at how these these things have changed um, over time. Let's start talking about solutions. Um, you write in the book that suburbs increasingly face the challenges of concentrated disadvantage. The nation may be at risk of replicating in suburbs the mistakes it has worked for decades to reverse in cities. So you lay down that uh, warning, but then you and Alan have some solutions. You have some good ideas. Can you walk me through some of the uh, concepts that you develop in the, in the work? Sure. And I think, you know, I do, I do just want to sort of underscore that, that quote there because it gets back to this sort of urgency of really addressing the changes we're, we're seeing in the geography of poverty. That even as poverty has suburbanized, as it's become more regional in its scope, concentrated poverty has also grown. So it's not like these, these numbers are, are happening evenly across regions. We are seeing uh, pockets and clusters of poverty emerge, not just in cities, but also increasingly in suburbs. And there are a lot of challenges that come along with concentrated disadvantage, again, that cities have been struggling with for decades, but suburbs are increasingly facing. So I think the challenge of not addressing the shift with really uh, updating, modernizing our approach to addressing poverty in place runs the risk of creating a much 
much more challenges ahead for the suburban uh, communities facing these trends. But we can, we have an opportunity to write a different course, to, to chart a different path here. And it's through a lot of the solutions that, that we are seeing um, emerge in regions across the country where local and regional leaders are finding more innovative ways to address the regional scope and reach of poverty. And a lot of these come back to finding ways to increase access to opportunity, okay. whether that's through transportation or services or jobs that give people the kind of pathways they need to work their way out of poverty. But whatever the, the angle on these different approaches we're seeing, uh, what they have in common is that they're finding ways to work at a more effective scale and they're more collaborative and integrated. So rather than tackling this place by place uh, or neighborhood by neighborhood, finding a way to really work across jurisdictions and across policy silos, you know, understanding how interrelated many of the challenges are that, that low-income families are facing. Um, so, for instance, you know, we can look here in the D.C. region, even in terms of the, so the social safety net. Because, you know, one of the challenges with suburban poverty is that often the, the nonprofit safety net is less present. It's less developed. Uh, it's patchier and thinner in suburban communities than we often find in, in cities who've been building these resources up for many years. Uh, so in the case of the D.C. metro area, you know, you had some strong urban providers who have a long history and track record in the city, like Latin American Youth Center, who saw that increasingly their clients were coming in from the Maryland suburbs, okay. you know, from Montgomery County, from Prince George's County, because there weren't the same sorts of services in their communities. Uh, and so in responding to that need, these providers were able to, with the help of local investors uh, and philanthropy, like, like venture philanthropy partners, were able to scale up their services, what had proven, you know, successful and, and you know, their sort of strong track record in the city, they were able to build on that and build out okay. to the suburbs to meet the need where it was growing. Um, so they were scaling up. They were finding a way to be more regional in, in the way they deliver their services. But we've also seen, you know, communities tackle this not just by one organization or institution trying to get to a bigger scale, but also by organizations and communities collaborating and working together to, to tackle these issues. Uh, and one example of that is um, first the collaboratives that we talked about in Chicago on the South Side, who since their early challenges have actually had some, some real successes in, in um, attracting money for the collaborative effort and investing in their communities. And the mayors and the staff and the people working in these communities point to all of the efficiencies of scale they've achieved by working through this collaborative, and that they've been able to do much more together than mm -hmm. they would have alone. But we also see that in a, from an education perspective in, in the south side of um, Seattle in King County where uh, many of the, the suburbs are struggling with growing poverty and have also become much more diverse with a lot more um, immigrants and refugee populations growing uh, in their community. So seen a real growth and, and change in the needs uh, of the community. And many of the school districts have been struggling with, with how to deal with the achievement gaps. Right. that they're all kind of facing. And rather, again, than trying to tackle this one by one, seven school districts, which are six suburban school districts in King County and the south side of Seattle, got together to form the Roadmap Project. And with this Roadmap Project, what they're doing is they've created this sort of collective impact model to work on a closing the achievement gap. They've agreed on uh, a unified set of metrics, sort of what is the goal that they're going to work towards. Uh, and then they've brought 
all kinds of partners together to help achieve those goals from nonprofits, elected officials, community colleges, housing authorities to all together agree on here's where we want to go. And now we're going to work together and measure our uh, you know, uh, our progress towards meeting those goals. And recently they they succeeded in um, winning a, a race to the top grant from the federal government to help them okay. with that collective effort. So again, I think all of these are just are just different models that underscore the same kinds of principles that are important given the regional reach of poverty today. And if we had to say three things, one, again, is scale. The second would be this integrated and collaborative approach, so finding ways to cross jurisdictions and policy silos. And the third is using limited resources and funds strategically, so taking a more outcome-focused uh, approach uh, and and helping to do- dollars to stretch further to help more people in more places. You have uh, on the website for the book, ConfrontingSurbanPoverty.org, um, a video that shows a graphic of, uh, I think it's a 80 cents of investment leading into $1.20 in outcome. Can you explain what that is all about? That was uh, actually a nod to something that Sarah Wartell from the Urban Institute has often said. How do we wring $1.20 of outcomes out of 80 cents of investment? And, and it's just this idea that we know the, the pool of funds to deal with these challenges is not getting any bigger. And in many ways, it's, it's shrinking. You know, and uh, many programs that have proven effective against poverty and, and the sort of resources we bring to bear are are in danger of, of further being scaled back. Mm-hmm. Uh, and even if they're not, we, do, we don't see this pool or pot of money growing significantly anytime soon, which means that for all the, the, the money that we do have to put towards this problem, how do we make it as effective as possible? Uh, and I think it, it comes back to, to figuring out these more outcome-driven investments where we can measure and figure out what works, uh, but also thinking about how those dollars stretch further, not just in one place, but at a regional scale to really tackle the, the scope of the challenge. Um, and going back to Race to the Top, which you just mentioned, now that's, a, that's an education program that incentivizes states to, to use their money, better investments for better outcomes. You, you use that as a jumping off point to talk about what you call the Metropolitan Opportunity Challenge. Can you describe what that is? So this is, you know, again, similar to the, to the way that Race to the Top incentivized states to, mm-hmm. to think differently uh, about their you know, education goals and how they were going to achieve them. This is the idea that if you look at what we spend today on place-based anti-poverty programs, uh, and we calculate in the book that that's roughly $82 billion a year. That encompasses 81 different programs that are spread across 10 different agencies. So again, this is a a pretty fragmented system Mm -hmm. that has evolved in the last 50 years. That's federal spending. This is federal spending, yes. We're focusing at the the federal level here. $82 Uh, billion a year against... 81 programs 81. and 10 different agencies. Okay. So it's, you know, it, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty fragmented system. Again, it's one that was often these programs have been built with a different sort of map of poverty than we're facing today and uh, often proven flexible to, to mapping onto the suburban environment as we discussed earlier. However, if we could, with this you know, significant investment, um, incentivize uh, states and metro areas to think differently about how they create access to opportunity, we could really move the needle in, in how we address poverty in place at a metropolitan scale. So to be more specific, we have $82 billion. If we repurpose just 5% of that, you're talking about $4 billion that could be put to this competitive program 
you would have states and metropolitan areas um, would come together to compete with these for these funds, and they would need to outline how they were going to measurably increase access to opportunity. And this couldn't be in one city or in one suburb. It would really have to be thinking sub-regionally or at a regional scale. Uh, and the way that this program would work is it would offer quite a bit of flexibility in terms of how how they identify what is their biggest need in terms of access to opportunity. For some places, it may be about public transit or affordable transportation options. and others, it may be affordable housing or services. Uh, and it may be a combination of those issues. The key would be that they would have to outline how they are going to partner public and private actors across jurisdictions, set their goals for how they're increasing access to opportunity, and measure progress toward those goals. And this could leverage both public and private investment to really, really reshape and, and change the way we're deploying funds uh, on the ground to increase access to opportunity. And how does this change come about? Well, that's a great question <laughs> because we know right now that a, a project of a sort of program of this scope and size, it would be very difficult in this political environment to get the bipartisan buy-in and congressional action. Right. Uh, and rather, I take that back. It's not about the bipartisan buy-in because this is this is a project, this is a program that is something that could appeal across the aisles because we're talking about increased efficiencies and more more accountable spending of federal dollars. Right. At there's the no new. There's no new money. There's it's no the new same money. money. That's it's repurposing right. it. And it's and it's even deployed in a way that should leverage additional dollars that are from the private mm -hmm. sector. Um, so it's it's taking what we have, using it more efficiently, uh, efficiently with more accountability. Um, but at the same time, it's also about making outcomes better for low-income people, whether they're in cities or suburbs, really increasing their access to economic opportunity and, and the sorts of, of um, opportunities that could set them on a more stable economic footing. So I think there is bipartisan appeal here. It's just in this current political environment, it would be very difficult to get this action you know, moving through Congress. Uh, however, while I, while I do think that there there is that opportunity there, the reality is we have a chance to pilot these same types of strategies in major metro areas. In fact, it's already kind of bubbling up and happening in certain ways, like the, the very uh, wide array of case studies that we cite in the book and we have on the website are pointing the way towards more effective, more innovative ways of doing just these types of things to, to help low-income people in metro areas um, get on this more stable economic footing. So I think the key in this political environment is to focus on where we can actually uh, pilot these ideas and show what works and what doesn't, and eventually lift those ideas up to the federal level to help bring federal policy along. And I think that we have a track record of being able to do this and make big changes happen. If we look at welfare reform, a lot of that came, you know, started with pilots that were able to then help shape and move federal policy. So it's our opportunity now to really get mayors, governors, you know, local leaders and officials working together to, to show the federal government what we need and what works in a modernized agenda and framework for addressing poverty. Well, it, it seems like questions of poverty and inequality are front and center on the national agenda now. So I think your, your, your book is uh, well positioned. I understand that it's going into a uh, paperback printing now that the hardcovers have sold out. So I congratulate you on that. Uh, and I, I was wondering if, if you have had a chance in the research and the writing and the promotion of this book to, to travel around and to, to visit with some of these communities. Yes, we've spent the last several months since the book came out going to metro areas across the country. And we've been in dozens of places uh, to talk about you know, how these trends have played out in, in different metro areas, because I think that's something that's been striking about these trends is 
you know, it's happening. Almost every major metro area has seen suburban poverty grow. So you're talking about you know, places with booming economies and as well as Rust Belt areas that have been struggling with declining economies for a long time. Uh, it's it's happening in, in just such a wide array of places that understanding, being able to go to these different places and show how this is playing out within each place has been a real, it's just been a great experience to be able to to you know, have these conversations with such a wide array of people, but also learn, you know, what so many different places are doing uh, and thinking about in terms of grappling with these challenges. Uh, and so we are continuing to update our website with a lot of the stories that we're that we're learning and um, and a lot of our experiences from from the roadshow, uh, and also trying to keep building out this array of best practices and, and what's working and help connect people throughout the country who are working on these issues to each other to share you know, what their experience have been and, and to learn from each other. Because that's also something that doesn't naturally necessarily exist, this network right. for suburban leaders and communities who are, who are grappling with these issues. So, so it's just it's been such a learning experience and a really um, energizing experience to see just how much is being done around the country to, to address these challenges. Well, Elizabeth, I, uh, I thank you for your time today. And I, I think now that we're, we're finished looking back over the last half century, uh, your book with Alan is, is a good roadmap to think about how to confront suburban poverty and poverty in general moving forward. So thank you for your time. Thank you. Watch videos, read case studies, and learn more about the book at confrontingsuburbanpoverty.org. And to hear more from the Brookings Cafeteria, subscribe on iTunes.